This is Life of an Architect, a podcast dedicated to all things architecture with a little bit of life thrown in for balance. So you're thinking about studying architecture. What are your options? Or are you just weeks away from starting your first semester of college architecture school? What's it going to be like? How hard is it? What am I going to do? Well, no matter your situation, we've got you covered today with all the introductory information in episode 131, Starting Architecture School. Today's episode is brought to you with generous support by Construction Specialties. Hi everyone, I'm Bob Borson. And I'm Andrew Hawkins. Today, Andrew and I are going to talk about the early steps in the educational process of an architecture student. So what does that mean and who is this information benefit? There's an obvious and not so obvious answer to this question. Clearly, it benefits students that are about to start architecture school, probably their parents as well. But it also benefits people who might be thinking about becoming an architect, which could mean people still in high school or people that chose a different path originally and are now considering a career change. Based on the emails I've received, there are plenty of people that fall into this latter description. So, where to begin? Let's start with the sort of degree you could pursue and those various pathways to graduation, possibly the consequences of choosing one over the other. But before we get into all this, because you and I had a chat literally about five minutes ago about this. <laughs> yeah. How did you start your path? How did you start your journey? So it's 1865. Yep. You're a young architect, hopeful, wannabe architect, Andrew Hawkins. Go. What do you do? Well, like I said, I didn't decide I was going to be an architect until my sophomore year of college. Of college. Of college. Yikes. Yeah. And so I was transferring schools and decided I wanted to do something different. I was an art major originally and decided I was going to be an architect after taking an architectural history course. And at that time, the only way for you to learn about programs is you, it was either to go visit or to try to find books maybe or call and get information mailed to you. When we like you went to the library and used the Dewey Decimal System. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the card catalog. That's what you had to <laughs> dig around. So for that transferring in my undergrad, I really didn't do much research. I found a couple of schools in Texas and applied and then went to one. And for my master's degree, it was a little bit different. I did a little bit more research, mask around and things like that. But it was still not as easy, I think, as it is today to find out information about architecture schools. Okay. I was making a joke about 1867. What year was it actually when you, like in, in your sophomore year of college? 94? Wow. 1994? Yeah. Okay. All right. I think so. So that's like the internet really kind of showed up around 95 for most public at large. So that was not an option for most people. Yeah. I want to say, because I'm trying to think, okay, where did I work when we got the, and it's so funny, like we got the internet. We put it on three computers in an office of 45 and I was one of the three people that got the internet on their computer. So nice. people would come up after hours and on the weekend. Yeah. To, you know, do stuff on the internet. Mm -hmm. So in contrast, I had the whole, hey, I want to be an architect. I was a little kid. This is what I was going to do. I chose the school I went to because that's just where you went to. It was the state school. It's where my two sisters went. Mm -hmm. It just so happened. It was a highly regarded architecture program, which I had no idea. I don't even know 
if back then they were keeping track of that stuff. Like, I don't think I could have gone to the card catalog and found something that said, this is a good school. I don't know if that existed. Yeah, I don't either. I have no idea. There was a list of them. They didn't rank them or anything, not that I was aware of. Well, I can tell you 100%. I was not aware of any of that. Yeah. So I applied without even knowing what criteria was required for me to get in. I didn't know what the process was. And to show the profound level of my ignorance, Mm -hmm. I didn't apply to any other schools. I was like, this is the one. This is where I'm going to go. I just applied there. Yeah. And the irony is, so I'm on the advisory board for my college now, Mm -hmm. the architecture school. And they, they take great pride in saying how hard it is to get in. And I look at that and I go, how lucky was I that I like checked the right boxes. And I, I will tell you, and this is a complete sidebar. I was a really well-accomplished music player. Like I was in band. I was a band kid. Mm-hmm. I played a bunch of different instruments and I was actually slightly maybe a little better than average. And I know that the band as the elective I'm trying to think of how the best way to describe it. The band as an elective path, you know, like you don't have to be in the band. People choose to be in the band. Sure. Had the highest GPA average of any elective group on group. campus. Mm-hmm. And at UT, that's a pretty big group. I mean, it was like 600 people. Mm-hmm. And they used to use us to recruit other band kids because band kids are generally, you know, they're pretty smart kids. Like a, They're not like goofing off because they're always in band practice. They don't have time to get in trouble. They used to say, hey, parents, if you're thinking about going to UT, we have a representative of every college on campus except architecture school. (laughs) And so I'm pretty sure that as soon as somebody that was like, that's funny, like they're like, oh, look, we got a band kid. That's actually not bad. And he going to the architecture program in. We need that guy. That's funny. I can't help but think that that figured into it. Also, I would have to say, though, it it was I'm not saying it still wasn't difficult, but it was much easier to get into college. When we were in college, all of those types of programs. I had friends that transferred with me that got into the Mace Business School here back then that there's no way in the world they would get in today. Sure, sure. And so it's a much more competitive environment now. Totally, totally agree. And I'm not saying it wasn't then, but it's a different. Yeah. It's exponentially more difficult. How about that? Sure. Like it's nuts because the number of applicants and everything, it's, it's crazy. Don't doubt it at all. Yeah. And people are a lot more informed because I still remember even like, oh, yeah. One of the first classes I took, they're like, write down your five favorite architects. I'm like, I can only come up with three. And part of it is because we just didn't have that information available to us. It's not like we're all chuckleheads at that point. Oh, yeah. No. We're like, where am I getting this information now? I can just go on to Art Daily or one of a, a billion different. You can go on to my website. I can just Google and, they, and I can find them. Yeah. All the information is just right there. It just wasn't like that back then. So the process of figuring out where you were going to school and why you would want to go to that school, drastically different than it is now. So now there's all kinds of avenues and platforms and places you can visit that can help provide you with this information. Yeah. So now it's almost gone the exact opposite way. There's so much information out there that it's hard to like kind of make sense of it. And you and I, and I'm not calling your school out because this is just, you don't know every school, you know your school. You've shared with me at times that you're not entirely sure that the students who go start the program realize, for example, you can't get licensed with a four-year degree. Mm-hmm. There are people that may not understand. They started going, hey, I'm going to graduate and be an architect, not understanding this is how this program works and this is what you need to get licensed. And yeah. if you go this path, there's an additional path. There's additional 
steps that you have to take to complete your journey. This is not a one and done situation. Yeah. Which was a surprise for me for sure. Yeah. And I, I didn't know it. <laughs> Even when I started, I was like, oh, I had no idea. And I didn't find out until maybe my first senior year that that was the case. I didn't have any idea. Luckily, the school I went to, that was the degree. So it wasn't a problem. Yeah. I didn't find myself in a position where my ignorance, I had to pay a price for not knowing something. Like it just so yeah. happened. Well, the degree I was getting was a five-year degree. So let's start. This is a big show, quite honestly. And there's so much information to it. Yeah. I don't know that people want a two-hour show or not about this, but let's just see what we get into. And so let's start with how we introduce the topic at the top of the show, and that is the various paths of architecture education to graduation. So this, what kind of degree you're going to get, and what does that mean, and, and like how long does it take to graduate, and all that kind of good stuff. Yeah. So Andrew, as a professor at a college-level program, did a ton of research for this show. So we're not talking about how it was in 1327 when I went to school. Yeah. In 1657 or whatever year I said at the top, when you went to school. So this is current, this is current data. Yeah. So you would use the acronym NAAB at the top of the show. For those who don't know, that stands for National Architectural Accrediting Board. And that's the organization that looks at your teachers and your curriculum and what you're teaching your students and decides whether or not, like, is this a professional degree? Is this a four-year degree? Do you need more education beyond this point to do what they feel you need to do to get a certain a certain type of... A level of education is really what it is. Level of education. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. Yeah. So you have a note here that I thought was interesting. There are 175 NAAB accredited programs that are offered by 139 institutions of higher learning in the U.S. and abroad. So what that means is one school might have more than one degree path that is accredited. Yes. But what you don't know without doing some research is some programs might not be accredited at all. And you might have one program that is and one program that isn't at the same school. Yep, for sure. I mean, there's so many bear traps in this that people... It ah. is. And if you don't know any of it or if your parents don't know, it's really hard to... It's hard to filter through this stuff without having some knowledge about exactly what you're filtering through and how it works. I was pretty surprised that the breakdown that's coming up next really surprised me when we start to break down those programs. But And I can't imagine that there's very many of those that are actually abroad that are NAB accredited because NAB accreditation is mostly for the United States. I have to admit that, that that's kind of what we're basing most of this on. Some of those schools, there's a bachelor's degree that's accredited and a master's degree that's accredited. And so that's how we end up with a few more a few more degrees than actually institutions. Okay, so here's, and maybe this will shoot the wheels off from how we, like the intent of how we want to unveil the information. But just, I feel like we need to say right out of the gate, generically speaking, there's five-year programs, which are professional programs, and those are degree path programs. That's the degree I have. I have a five-year degree. Mm-hmm. And when I graduated, I'm eligible to get my experience, take the test, and become an architect. Mm-hmm. Yes. Then there's four-year degree plans. And the four-year degree assumes that you're going to go on to a master's program. Yes. And that could be either a two- or a three-year program mm-hmm. in order for you to become eligible to then go get your experience and to sit for the license exam to get your license as an architect. Yeah. And the way that works is the five-year degree is a professional accredited degree by NAB. Mm-hmm. And 
in those other instances, it's the two-year degree that is a professional accredited degree. So the four is not an accredited degree, so you have to go get the two-year or the three-year, depending upon what you're doing, to have an accredited degree. And again, in most instances, and I know this we're kind of bouncing a little bit, but that's fine. It was hard for me to figure out how to put it in here. But that vast majority of the states in the U.S. that you want to get licensed in, you have to have an accredited degree. There's a few loophole states where you don't have to have an accredited degree. Mm-hmm. You can have experience, but for the majority, I mean, I think that's like six states or something out of the 50 that you can do that. But for all the rest of them, you have to have an accredited degree of some kind. So that's either a five-year degree or the four plus two degree. Yeah. So those are your paths. Those are the paths. And out of the, I don't know, 175 NAAB accredited programs, there's only 59 that are five-year accredited bachelor programs, which are generally referred to as BARCs or BARCs, yeah, Bachelor of Architecture. And I was surprised by that, but I didn't realize it was that low. I thought they were going to be pretty even, but it's a pretty low number compared to 121 that are accredited master's programs. You know, it's funny. I have the exact opposite reaction. It seems to me that that number, that 59 accredited five-year, is getting lower and lower and lower. Part of my brain tells me if we had looked at this number eight years ago, 10 years ago, it would have been higher. There'd been fewer four twos and more five years. I don't know. I don't have any data to support that. I don't know that it's changed that much in a while. At my institution, we changed from a five-year degree to a 4-2 system in like 1971 or something. Like, So it's been quite a while when we made that switch. Okay. I don't expect you to know the answer to this question. Provided more flexibility. What does that mean, though? A flexibility to do what? To start and go, well, this isn't for me and pun out with a degree? No. To be able to do... First, there's institutional flexibility. So when we weren't trying to be accredited with... The undergraduate program, you could teach a little bit more broadly about design and things like that. So it wasn't purely architecture focused, which we'll get into later. But then also the idea of at the time there was, it seems like, and what I've heard, because we've talked about it ad nauseum, that there was this push to get this design degree and then go do other things. I go through architecture school, but then I'm going to go and be an urban planner. I'm going to go be somebody that works for the government doing something. And I'm not necessarily going to be an architectural path. Yeah. A licensed professional. They were like, well, it opens you up to more career possibilities. But we should clarify, more career possibilities, but these are non-licensed paths. Yes. Yes. If you go do that and you're going to go step two somewhere else, it's because you're conceding that I'm not on a licensed architectural educational path. Exactly. You weren't going to be a licensed architect, but you were going to work in the broader architectural and design industry as a whole. And so there was some yeah. some reason there was some appeal to that at way back then. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. But the reason why I have a lot of this information is because I've been working on a curriculum that we're going to have a five-year program at my school. Yeah. Okay. We're shifting towards that. And to really drill down on this. So what that means is with the degree that I actually have, I have a five-year degree, which mm-hmm. to be honest, took me six years to get. I graduated with, I think, 207 credit hours. Yeah. That's a lot of hours. Like, that's a lot of school. Mm -hmm. And I started off day one in the architecture program. So it's not like, I mean, I want to say- But you wouldn't be allowed to do that now, but yeah. What do you mean I wouldn't be allowed to do it? There's- What would I not be allowed to do? Well, you would, but they would start to penalize you. For what? For all those credit hours. No, my degree, 
Look, I've been trying to find this out. My degree at a five-year degree when I started was like 180 hours. Maybe. So I don't have that much extra baloney in it. Yeah. And I will tell you, when I went and met with the, the undergraduate advisor, they tried to penalize me for being in band. And I made this argument. I was like, there was a little bit of, are you kidding me? You're well aware how I was leveraged as being the only member of this entire college that was in the band. There was nobody else in the architecture school that was in the band program. Mm -hmm. And so I made this case. I built my argument. And he goes, all right, this is fair. You made a fair case. So all these additional elective credits that I had, these fine art elective credits, he let me count band towards all of them. Because I was Mm -hmm. in the band for three years, six semesters. Yeah. And he's like, all right, I'll take off this fine art credit and I'll let you count band for more than just two. Mm -hmm. Because that's what they were going to do. They were only going to give me six hours of credit for band, even though I had whatever it is, 18 hours of credit. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that's like a semester of school. I'm not, forget it. This is ridiculous. Yeah. So I made this argument. I didn't have a lot of fluff built into my degree. Like, so when I graduated with over 200 hours, it wasn't because I was coasting. You know, the only coasting I did is because I went to Europe one year. And guess what? I only got 15 hours of architecture school credit during that time. Mm-hmm. Well, the way it works now, right, for a four-year degree at any public institution, it can only be 120 hours. And if you have more than 120 hours, you actually start to pay more for those hours. Well, maybe I paid more, but I only paid like two shiny pieces of glass and a chicken feather. I know. Yeah, exactly. I know. It was three marbles versus four or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so we're working through that. But I was surprised that there was 59 BRs programs. I figured there were going to be much more than that. It's kind of interesting to me. Okay. So here's a piece of information for you. You need to help break this down for me. So ACSA data, which is the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture, which I've never heard of before. I don't know. That's a teacher thing. It's an academic thing. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I don't think like regular practicing architects have ever heard of the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture. I don't know that I had till I started teaching either. Yeah. (laughs) So you got to help me with this. So there's over 450 colleges in the U.S. that provide some sort of architectural studies degree. Mm-hmm. How can I fix in my brain that there's 450 colleges that provide some sort of degree, yet there's only 175 accredited programs in the country? Are you telling me the delta between 175 and 450 are just whatever? You, we're just talking about architecture, but you can't do anything with it? They're non-accredited degrees. so. That's amazing I mean, to me. Now, well, you're, it, you're saying they have to go get a graduate degree. Yes. You have to. We know that. Yes. The program at my school, the four-year degree, is a non-accredited degree, so it falls into that category, even though it's an architecture. 450 colleges, though. I was surprised by that, too. But that's architectural studies. That's architectural engineering. That did include interiors. I think there was a few things like that, but mostly, I mean, it's architectural studies focused. Yes. Well, it's also undergrad and graduate degrees. That number is both. Yes. Because in that part of it. Yes, yes. Bachelors and masters. Yeah. Because if you just break it down into a bachelor level, it goes from 450 to 220. 220, which there was 139 institutions that have accredited degrees. There's 220 that don't. So there's an extra 189 or something schools where you could get a bachelor's degree that's not accredited degree. Okay. And maybe you're going to have to cut this part out so I don't look stupid with my math. If I have 450 colleges that provide some type of architectural studies degree, which includes mm-hmm. both bachelor's and master's level, yeah, and of those 220 are bachelor's, that tells me that the balance is master's. Or doctoral. 
or doctoral. But what I don't understand is those are accredited within the Association of Collegiate Schools of Architecture? They don't accredit anything. Why would anybody do that? What do you mean? Why would someone get an advanced degree in something that wasn't accredited in, in any capacity in our profession? Well, but they might not be in our profession. Those are industry, not I'm going to be a licensed architect. Like I said, it's urban planning, interiors. I think landscape architecture was in there. They couldn't break it down. So it was, it's a broader spectrum of studies. To me, what that really meant is there's a lot more options for a 4-2 path than there is a five-year path. Because I could go to any one of those 220 schools and get an undergraduate degree that's somewhat related to architecture. And then go get a more focused degree for the two. And then go get a more focused degree for my master's degree. Yes. More from Life of an Architect in just a moment. Andrew and I are joined today by Anthony Peachy, who has been with Construction Specialties for 12 years and holds the role of Senior Marketing Manager. His work at CS has included development of new seismic solutions for the industry, and he's passionate about the built environment embracing better solutions for the people who visit and occupy those spaces. Hi, Anthony. How are you doing? Thanks for joining us today. Hey, guys. Great to be with you. Good to see you again. It's been a couple of months, I guess. Yeah. Last time was at the AIA conference, right? Yep. Yeah. Good time. Where do you call home? Where are you at tonight? I'm actually in Muncie, Pennsylvania, which is about north central. Closest claim to fame would be Williamsport, which is the home of the Little League World Series. Nice. Let's jump right into this because you're generous to spend your time with us this evening. And I know that Andrew and I have a couple questions and I just want to kind of jump into it if that's all right with you. Absolutely. So CS is a longtime manufacturer of architectural building products. And in the coming year, you are focused on an educational concept called mastering movement. Can you tell us what that means? Yeah, absolutely. So many of the listeners may not know this about CS, but we offer 10 distinct different categories of building products for the construction industry. And this whole concept of mastering movement really came about when we were brainstorming how to tie all of our products together. And so term resilience kept getting thrown out and we kind of asked the question, well, resilience against what? And so we kept landing on these different types of movement that a building has to withstand. And it's also what architects, designers, engineers, GCs, they're designing for, just maybe in a different set of terminology. And so we know that change is inevitable. Buildings go through all sorts of change, whether it's once the building's built, the live loads that go into the building, the migration of people through the building, the external elements of sun, wind, water, rain, or fire even. We design against these things, these elements. We know that architects have to plan for it, structural engineers design for it. And so we as a company are committed to being experts in certain product solutions that address these types of specific movements. And so, as you mentioned, we're launching and are working through this mastering movement course of presentations where we're taking a look at the range of whether they're man-made elements or environmental elements that really impact buildings and the variety of issues that the buildings have to accommodate or deal with. Sounds good. So how is that educational component, how's that all going to roll out? Yeah, so we've developed a series of courses that will be available online. But as any CEU course, you can obviously request these and our product experts and specialists could do them either virtually or in person as well. And so over the course of 
I think this next year, we're going to be joining you guys and we're going to just be dropping some specific nuggets of knowledge that we've learned over our time in the industry of how to address these specific movements in the built environment. And hopefully how architects can find some pretty innovative solutions and services that can help them plan for it. Yeah. So we're excited that you're going to come on the show with us a couple times over the next year or so, but it's not always going to be you. There's going to be product experts that are specific to the kind of different types of movements that are occurring in buildings right. to talk specifically about their area of mastery, right? Exactly. So I'm doing a general overview and then we'll have some product experts that can really dig deep into some specific areas of how we would recommend mastering movement, whether that's with some of the services that we offer and then obviously the solutions that we provide at the end of a, of a project. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I'm kind of curious about what sort of architectural solutions are you going to be exploring in the Mastering Movement Academy? So as I mentioned, we offer 10 different product lines, anything from louvers and sunshades that handle the movement of sun, air, and water. I think ventilation in a building's key but also shading that building and making sure that the spaces inside of a structure are comfortable and not glaring. The other things that we could offer are modular stair systems, and these systems really help when it comes to movement on a job site. We could talk about putting stairs up from the foundation and then doing all your landings or all your levels off of your stairs so you have instant access. Other types of movement would be actual building movement. So with expansion joint covers, and then a lot of people movements, people do a lot of damage to buildings. And <laughs> so we've got solutions to guard against that, whether that's entrance flooring systems that are keeping your first impressions great, or interior wall protection, that's really holding up to the use that carts put on a building or doors that withstand all of the movement through the space itself. So We'll be exploring a variety of solutions that we've designed over the course of time. We've learned and designed and re-engineered and engineered to solve these building movement issues. And really, at the end of the day, it's all been designed to support the desire of achieving a really great aesthetic and making your building function appropriately. Wonderful. Yeah, sounds great. We're looking forward to chatting with you and your team over the next year to kind of learn more about all these individual pieces. So... Thanks for joining us today and kind of give us an overview. Absolutely. It's great to be with you guys as always. It's great for you to start this off for us and we're looking forward to having it all breaking down over the next couple of months. Visit masteringmovement.net for more information and to learn more about how Construction Specialties has been creating inspired solutions for a more intelligently built environment since 1948. I'm just kind of curious, and this is not in the show notes, but probably what's going to make the show so rewarding for people to listen to. All right. Do you think in your professional, highly educated, super senior experience within the industry, does having a five-year degree versus an undergrad and a graduate degree, do people view those differently? Are you like, yeah, but I got a master's degree. Mm. People are like, well, I just got a five-year undergraduate degree. Like They're like, oh, well, clearly you're not as good as this guy. My experience is nobody cares. I don't think so. No, I don't think it makes any difference. But I think it's what's available to you or what's possible. You may not ever know. The only time I've seen it make a difference, this is not an insignificant comment, that if I wanted to go teach at the mm -hmm. collegiate level, my five-year 200 hours degree that I have 
since I don't have a master's, they're like, well, you can't be a college professor. We really want a master's level degree to go along with your undergrad. And I was like, you realize how stupid that is, right? Like Sometimes. Well, yes. This is a little hyperbole, right? I'm kind of like exaggerating. Yes. But there have been a couple of times when people said, hey, we think that you might want to think about coming in like teaching here. And then they'll say, can you give us some information? And I used to send it along. They're like, you don't have a master's. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, all right, well then pass. That's kind of that whole counterculture. Well, why do I want to be a part of something that would have me as a member? Yeah. I thought it was silly, but it's the only time when people said, hey, if I want to get a master's, why would I want to do that? And quite honestly, I'll admit a little short-sightedly of me, I used to say, Get a master's if you want to, if you think that at any time in your life, you want to be a college professor, you want to teach architecture, you want to be that person, you need a master's degree. That has always been kind of my default. That's why you would do it, as opposed to what you are now opening my eyes to, the idea that if I can get a four-year degree, I have so many more possibilities for me to go get a more focused two-year degree that allows me to become a licensed professional. Mm-hmm. that's kind of what, because the, there's not that many five-year degrees. Like you're kind of limited on your options. Yeah. But the four two opens up a lot of doors for you. And that's why somebody might do it. And I know that some people might look at it and say, well, five-year degree. Well, that's five years. That's one less year of paying for school. One less year. Sure. But I admitted it took me six years to get that five years because the expectation, especially at the number of credit hours that was involved with the degree that I got, there was an expectation that you're placing out of classes through AP testing or you're going to summer school. Even at six years, I went to summer school full time for two summers during that. Yeah. Now, I took goof off classes like I took English level one and two. But like you had to to graduate. Yeah. There were core curriculum classes. They weren't architecture, but you had to take them. Yeah. Yeah. I took a history class. I took a government class and I took an English, like a freshman English and sophomore English in summer school. Mm-hmm. at a community college by where I live. Yeah. And the killers, I think I paid like $33 for each one of those classes. <laughs> <laughs> That's absurd. This would have been like probably 1988, 1989. Obviously, I know it's more expensive now, but. Yeah, for sure. That's the thing. Even though it was less than what it is now, it was less to take those classes at community college that I transferred over to big University of Texas down in Austin. Mm-hmm. It was cheap no matter how you looked at it, but it was still cheaper to take those classes at a community college because they weren't specific to the professors. I am just checking the box. And the truth is I took freshman English and sophomore English after I had already accomplished all my upper level writing component course work for UT. Because mm-hmm. they didn't say it wasn't sequential. Like I didn't have to take freshman and sophomore English before I took these upper level writing components. <laughs> Interesting. So all of a sudden I'm going from writing like 15 page theory papers to like, what'd you do this summer papers? <laughs> <laughs> well, and again, see, we just want to talk about it. Like right now, your five-year degree is, at UT is 161 credit hours. That's what it takes. Yeah, yeah. And they also have a Bachelor of Architectural Studies, which is a non-accredited degree. Yes. And so it's all the same. I don't mean it's all the same, but I mean, like, that's how we end up with all these other degrees and other possibilities because it's just something different that's not accredited. Well, you know what they told me when I was in school about that? That was the escape clause degree. So that was that four-year degree yeah. was for those that couldn't hack it. Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, you spend a lot of time to get to this point. You don't have what it takes. 
So we're going to give you a degree that you can punt out and go do something else with without losing all these highly specific classes that are not going to transfer to a different degree. They don't transfer to another department. That's right. That's the problem. That degree was presented like, uh, you don't got what it takes, but you can graduate with a degree and then go do something else. Well, or the difference, I think, the flip side of that is, as opposed to being that, is that somebody decides in their sophomore year or their junior year that they want to do architecture. And because of the way that works, all of their classes that they have in hours don't actually apply to architecture school either. Because we have a lot of students like that, that, that we have this degree that essentially lets them do architectural studies, but they don't have any studios because all the studios have to be sequential. And if they decide four or five semesters in that they want to do architecture, they're four or five semesters behind in studio because it's not like you can just hop into third year studio or whatever. Right. Correct. So they get this other degree that then they get to move into the four-year degree and the two-year path or the four-year and three-year path. because It allows you to keep moving forward despite the fact that you didn't take courses yeah. in, at the, at the yeah. sequential moment when they would have been taken otherwise. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay, so this is kind of interesting. So in the in the five-year bachelor of architecture path, we already kind of said part of the reason why somebody might want to do that is because in theory, it's one less year and therefore it's going to cost you less money to go to college, mm -hmm. which is not an insignificant consideration. No, not at all. Yeah. It also allows you, presumably, not only the money part, but just get in and get out faster. Like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is over quicker, but it's over quicker. That's part of it. The kind of one and done thing. Yeah. Yeah. One of the knocks might be that, and this is interesting, this was not a consideration when I was in school as much as it is now. So yeah. it doesn't allow for the personalized courses for study. So now we know people that go get a four-year degree and then they go to master's, but they might come out with a certificate in like healthcare. Mm -hmm. They can specialize or like do a more focused area of study within the field of architecture to a particular type of work that they're interested in pursuing. Sure. I worked with a guy that did that. Yeah. And he actually graduated from A&M, went and got his graduate degree, and it focused on healthcare work. Healthcare, yeah. Yes. And that, and that was his goal. Everyone I knew who came out of our five-year degree were like, what's up? Like, we didn't know. There was no specialization. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In our mind, this might be egotistical. We were too young to realize that may be what it was. Like, so intent maybe matters in this regard. But we used to think, hey, if you're getting a five-year degree, part of the reason to do that and you get into school like UT is their job is to teach you how to think, not how to do a thing. So there was no need for you to specialize in something because in, in our mind, they were teaching us how to do everything or anything, however you wanted to look at it. Yeah. And so there was a little bit of a, well, why would I want to specialize? And I still wonder that sometimes because I go, how do you know what you want to do if you haven't gotten out there and done some of this stuff? You did it because you... But a 4-2 allows you to do that too, though. Yes. And the fact that it's that you're four years in might mean you're also a little older, a little bit more mature. Maybe you've learned enough now to kind of realize what you like and what you don't like. Mm -hmm. That's part of a consideration to why that would be an advantage. So the five-year, you're kind of committed. Like I said, there's not an escape hatch for you unless you punt out to a four-year degree mm -hmm. at that point. If you realize that maybe I've made a terrible decision. <laughs> Which may not always be an option. It may not. At some schools it is. At other schools it may not be, right? Like yes. if there's not a, a five-year and a four-year degree where you're at, you may not have the opportunity to do that. Yeah. Okay. So if we look at a 4-2 in comparison, okay, so it's one more year. Just based on you get done what you're supposed to be. Yeah. So it's one more. Ideal scenarios. Yeah. yeah. So just one more year means one more year's worth of money, mm -hmm. right? 
But the extra kicker is graduate school typically costs more yeah. than undergraduate school. Yeah. So it's not just more money. It's more money of more money. Yeah, usually. And sometimes, a lot of times, one of the advantages, I think this is a very real advantage. Like I never could understand people that got their undergraduate and graduate degrees at the same school. Mm-hmm. That, like that's something that used to like break my brain a little bit because there's so many specialized degrees out there now. And part of the idea that flexibility that becomes available to you when you do a 4-2 is you might go to school one to get your foundational work done and you realize I'm really interested in sustainability. These are the things that like move the needle for me. Well, now you can go seek out schools that are really good at that specific thing. Yeah. Because you know what? Not all schools are great at sustainability. Not all schools are great at going, hey, we have a healthcare specialty path that you can pursue if that's what you're interested in. Yeah. Historic preservation or... Yes. I mean, there's all kinds of things that where you can find, especially in graduate programs, that they lean towards that focus. I mean, it's not one thing. Usually it's a couple, but that gives you that opportunity to be able to seek those things out in the 4-2 that you might not be able to really do as easily in a five-year program. Yeah. And so you're able to not only choose something that may be like a school that's that specializes in your area of interest so you can get more focused or pointed education in something mm-hmm. as opposed to just kind of, yeah. we're good at everything to a certain degree, as opposed to we're great at this one thing. Yes. But the other thing that is a consideration for this has to do with if you choose a path that's not strictly architecture focused, like you were alluding to at the beginning of the show. Sure. You might decide like historic preservation. I mean, that was not an option for me when I went to school. <laughs> yeah, I don't know there was for me either. And now it is. Sure. So it's wildly different. The landscape uh, has changed a lot from when we went to school to in the Bronze Age to now, for sure. Yeah. But there is, and I'm telling you just from my standpoint, It's interesting. The data you've put together and what we've been talking about, you can start to see the appeal of a 4-2 in a way that I will concede I didn't actually recognize Mm -hmm. earlier, to be honest with you. Well, and the other thing that we didn't mention the last little bit that I think really makes a difference is being able to take a break and actually go work. Sure. Finish the four-year degree and go to work. And sometimes I find that for some students, that really helps them actually focus I get that sort of generalist degree and I can go work in an architecture firm with a lot of the four-year degrees and figure out what part of architecture that I actually like. And then that allows me to focus my master's study, again, pick whatever that is. If there's something I want to focus on, I can find the right school to do that and go there. So when I was in grad school, I was with people that had been out, some of them 10 years that decided to come back. Yeah. To me, that's a little bit long, but I think two or three or four years or five even to figure out what I'm interested in. And working, and sometimes even that allows you to save up for paying for graduate school. Yes. Those kind of things. You just don't get that opportunity. Well, I'm always kind of amazed. So this is a bit of a slippery slope from my perspective, because I know a handful of people, and it's the idea that, hey, I got my four-year undergrad, I go work for a while. The next thing you know, it's been like 10 years. (laughs) They never come back. Yeah. They're like, I don't know how, like, I got a house now, and I got a kid, and I got like, sure. like, how can I stop? So even the people I know that went back. And I have a couple of people that work with me that did this mm-hmm. and they worked while going to graduate school because yes. they didn't have a choice. Yes. Right. They're like, life has continued and I don't have like this. <laughs> yeah. Like I got, I got different kind of financial responsibilities that are on me now that don't allow me to just be a student. I need to be sure a working student. And those people, oh my God, one, they're amazing. I will tell you, like there's two people specifically I'm thinking of in my own office. They were amazing before they did this, 
And it just solidified how amazing they are to continue working at the level that they work. And that's part of what maturity brings you. Mm -hmm. They had the ability to focus and they didn't jerk around. You know, like they brought like this professional, I have a real job work ethic to the educational graduate school. Yes. And they just like run laps around everybody else who's still in that professional student, mm -hmm. their work ethic. Like I show up, I put my head down. When I work eight hours, man, you're getting eight hours worth of work. Mm -hmm. And like the other one's like, I work eight hours. Well, I took a couple of coffee breaks <laughs> and then I walked over there and I played, you know, whatever, high five, whatever. Like there's always some kind of. Yeah. Well, and I watched some YouTube videos and I did some other stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it was different. It was different for those folks. So I have a lot of admiration for people who actually have the discipline and the self-control to have a four-year degree and then they step away from it to work or like do whatever it is and then to go back. I can't imagine how hard that is to actually do. But for one of them, they want to get licensed. They're like, I have to do it. Like, I, mm -hmm. this is hard, but I don't know how I could not do it. There's no other way. Yeah. There's, I have to do it. And another one, she was actually an interior designer and decided she wanted to get a graduate degree in architecture because she's like, I'll be a better interior designer with mm -hmm. some architectural education. Mm -hmm. And so that's what she did. And now everyone in my office is trying to convince her to like come over to the architecture side full time. Yeah. <laughs> that's funny. It's kind of funny. But this is the thing that's kind of interesting about that four two is, you know, you could get an accounting degree with your four year degree. You could. Yes. And then come to architecture school and get an accredited master's. And you're still on the path where you can now get your experience and sit for the exam. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, the 4-2 doesn't have to be four years of undergrad architecture and two years of graduate level architecture to do this. Mm -hmm. And that's true. I will say that most of the time, though, that ends up being three years of graduate school. Yes, it adds to it. It typically adds one year to that process at almost all schools. Yes. Yeah, so if you have a four-year unaligned degree. Non-design degree, essentially. No kind of design or architectural studies. Yes. Accounting, political science, whatever it is. Psychology, whatever it is. Yeah. You're checking that box. So you're going to have three years of graduate school. Fun fact. My favorite phrase. Fun fact. My five-year degree, my for me to go get a master's is one year. Mm -hmm. I can get a master's degree in one year. Mm -hmm. It's a different master's degree, though, actually. Well, it doesn't matter. It just checks that no, box. Hello, professorial jobs come my way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So the other thing that we kind of already said, but I want to like put a bow on it. The idea that you could take a gap between the four-year undergrad and your two-year, or depending if it was a non-design degree, your three-year master's degree, not only does it allow you to get out there and maybe figure out a little bit of what your interests are. It allows you to mature mm -hmm. a little bit too, which helps you understand maybe what you're trying to accomplish. For sure. At one level, if you have that kind of emotional maturity to, to leave and then know that you're going to go back and actually do it, which that's a big one. I'm not going to underscore just how... I know way more people that came out with a four that never went back than I do the people that came out with a four, took a break, and did go back. Mm. Like It's not even close. It might be 20% of all the people that came out for the four year and then worked, 80% never went back. They just didn't do it. But that's why I feel like in reality, about two years is about all you can muster. And even then, they've got to be, I hate to say it that way, but a non-life-changing two years, right? Like, can't do that. Go, yes. ha go have kids and get married and do it. Like, no, you got to yeah. just yeah. go be a working person, figure some stuff out, and then go back. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. Okay. 
So let's say that you figured out if you're going to do a four-year degree and a two-year master's or five-year, like you figured that out. You made your path and even if you change your mind, whatever, let's just say you're about to start school. Here we are. Boom. You're about to start architecture school. What things might you be studying in the beginning? Like what happens? You step foot in the building. You're like, what's up? Yeah. What happens? I can tell you it's not architecture. (laughs) Day one architecture classes, studio not architecture. Mm-hmm. It's like, this is a block. This is a square. This is <laughs> void. This is negative space. It's This is a cube. This is a pattern. Of, yes, but it is not, you're going to design a building that has museum and this and that and all these parts. And nope, that's not how it works. Yeah. So you're going to start off with, well, you should. The expectation, I did it. I know you did it. I know your school does this. I think most schools do. I mean, there are a few that I think that don't that I'm aware of for the most part. Yeah. Basic design principles. That apply to just design. Learning how to design. It doesn't matter. You could put that towards graphic design. You could put it towards product design. You could put it towards whatever. But it's just design principles that you have to learn and understand that then you can apply to the idea of making architecture. Yeah. Well, that's part of the, you know, one of the hallmarks of an architectural education is supposed to be our ability to critically think. Mm -hmm. Take things that don't have anything to do with one another and find a relationship between the two of them. Yeah. So... Some of that's just a type of pattern recognition, and it doesn't literally have to be positive-negative pattern recognition, but it's like, it's alignments, it's uh, it's densities, it's scales, it's proportions. It's like, how do you start to find some relationship between this and that, that you start to be able to rationalize and digest it and re-spit it out in a way that matches the priorities that you've decided are important for how you're going to go about solving this problem. Yeah. It's not, where am I putting my columns? How big a span am I making? Yeah. How much glass do I have in my building? How am I keeping water out? Where are we putting the restrooms next to this to that? No, it doesn't work that way. Yes. How much square foot does a copy room require? That, that's not it. No. And you know, truth is, I didn't get into any of that one, like the copy room, ever. Never. Yeah. And all those hours I took, not once did I ever design a copy room. It never happened. <laughs> yeah. Here's why that's important to kind of bring up. Because for a lot of students, they walk in the building and they think that's what it's going to be. And it's not. And they're like, what have I gotten myself into? Yeah. It's it's a major frustration for a lot of first year students, especially I find it now it's even more so because there's so many more students, at least coming into my program, that have done some kind of architecture in high school where they're skipping, I think, a lot of the basic fundamentals. And so they'll come in at day one, they're thinking, all right, man, we're about to design 95 story skyscrapers. That's going to be my first project my first year. It just doesn't work that way. So it's a big frustration for them. They feel like it's not architecture. And a lot of people can kind of lose their minds over that bit in the beginning. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I don't know that I had any expectations, quite honestly. Yeah, I didn't either. There are a couple of, one of the very first projects that I have like any kind of recollection is I had to design an animal enclosure for a specific animal. Mm. And I got assigned a jaguar. (laughs) And so part of this had to do with problem solving. Like, okay, you got to figure out, like, what can a jaguar do? Do, yeah. Yeah, you're like, does it does it climb? Does it swim? Does it jump? Turns out jaguar does all that stuff. Everything, yeah. Yeah, and so the, the professor was like, your animal is like one of the, there's a reason why you don't see jaguars in zoos very often. And when you do, they're in glass boxes. Because mm-hmm. they can get out of anything. They can swim. And I read some, now this is 30-year-old information, but they're like, Jaguars are swimming down a river and they jump 15 feet out of the water, grab a monkey out of a tree. And they're like, what? Like, how do you design an enclosure 
that's all naturalized that you can keep that jaguar enclosed. They're like, so you're doomed. Let this professor tell me this. You're, this is going to be terrible for you. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm sitting next to a guy that's designing a, an enclosure for gophers. <laughs> you know, or, no, prairie dogs, prairie dogs. Chicken, they're chickens, yeah, or something, yeah. Yeah, and he's trying to figure out, like, well, how do you, they're standing up, like, like how do you see how they live? So he's basically doing, like, an ant farm, but an ant farm, prairie yeah. dog. So it really didn't have so much about the architecture, but just the problem-solving process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think I started designing a building. At least we did do a building. We did a house. It was actually mm-hmm. at Sea Ranch in California. Mm-hmm. It was the last project of my freshman year. Mm-hmm. It's so bad. And I want to say, I grew up in a house. So I should have some basic fundamentals on like how they work. Yeah. Like bathrooms. <laughs> like you couldn't mm-hmm. need them. Mm-hmm. You know, how many? It just, it was so ridiculous. Yeah. It got to the point that by the time I got to fifth year and I'm like, what am I going to keep hold of? This is a treasured design. I threw that away. I was like, I hope that nobody ever sees this. Mm-hmm. In my mind, when I become famous, I do not want this out there. I don't want this showing up. <laughs> <laughs> it's so bad. And yeah. what made it worse? And so Charles Moore reviewed it and he designed Sea <laughs> <C> Ranch. <laughs> like he's one of our professors. Yeah. He was really nice. He goes, You know what you did? It's kind of like what we did. Like we're really on the same page. This is all like, this is awesome. And I look back and I go, that was just a nice dude. <laughs> like, there was no he was, way. He was lying Charles, through his teeth. <laughs> I was like, I don't know why he felt like he needed to be a kind person. Maybe because he was asleep for part of the, I don't know what it was. But he could have lit me on fire for what I did. <laughs> yeah. And he didn't. Yeah, so I have fond memories of Charles Moore for just the fact that he was kind when he didn't need to be. And we know that architecture professors don't really have a reputation for being super considerate, nice human beings. Yeah. We tend to be overly critical. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the point. It's like, all right, you think you're great, but let me tell you why you're not. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, there's a lot of that goes into it. Yeah, yeah. So we know that day one, what you think you're going to get versus what you actually get, that's hard. I know that you think it. But there's some trying to understand why you're being tasked with these non-architectural but critical thinking exercises are important. So obviously things like patience is kind of important. Mm-hmm. A little trust in the process here. Yeah, for sure. And it's the idea that we need to instill some fundamentals in you, which, as you put down here, you need to learn how to crawl before you're walking mm. or walk before you run or like where, where you look at it. Yeah. You got to figure out how this functionally works before you start going, I'm going to do Taj Mahal part two. Yeah. So that's a big part of it. Mm-hmm. And I imagine that after some time, they may not see it in the beginning, but they start to understand that, well, that. It doesn't seem like these items relate or they're going to contribute to your ability to solve problems. They will. It's going to cement itself in some capacity for you. Yeah. It's probably really going to start landing probably around your third year. Yeah. There's a point when I used to teach first year, I taught that for like about two years. I mean, now I'm rolling back into career change, which is very similar. But there was a time in about the middle of the second semester of students first years where you started expecting things to click a little bit and we would be like yep now you get it you could actually almost just sit around and watch the light bulbs go off in students heads where all these things that we've been preaching and harping on they start to make sense and they start to gel together and you can realize oh yeah okay i get it sort of and you could just watch it I would think that'd be a pretty cool moment. It is. Yeah. As a professor, you're like, oh, it is. they're getting it. They're starting yeah. to it is. see it. It's pretty cool. Okay. Well, something else that we have written down here is the idea that there's a little bit of 
we got to weed out people who think they're supposed to be here, but they're realizing that maybe we're just going to encourage them into a no. Yeah. Which was, I never, my personal experience wasn't that, let's see, how can I say this in a way that makes sense? That doesn't sound terrible. So it was a hard school to get into. I didn't meet anybody in there that was dumb. Mm -hmm. These are all really, really, these are all amazing, smart, intelligent people. Sure. So from an architecture standpoint, it had more to do with, are you willing to do the work? Like there's an effort that was required from a studio standpoint to kind of check dedication, which these days, I'm not sure that I'm on board with that. But the other thing they do is, is they made us take these non-architecture classes that were brutal. We had to take Euclidean geometry. Mm. Like it was ridiculously hard. We had to take a physics class. I had to take a gear of physics, not mm-hmm. one semester, two semesters. Yeah. And it wasn't like physics for hobbyists. It was like physics for physicists. Yeah. We don't mess around with that. Literally the hard, it was so hard. Yeah. It was ridiculous. Yeah. And people are like, I can't do this. And you're like, you just got to get through it. Cause you know what? You get through this class, smooth sailing. This is about the work. This is about do what you got to do to get past it. Yeah. And you know, cause I, I will tell you, Math is not an issue for me now, mm-hmm. man, but I did more. The hardest math I ever did was my freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. Once I got past physics for physicists, yeah, cake. Like yeah. structures wasn't even that bad at that point. Yeah. I mean, architectural math isn't that challenging, but it's the getting to that point. But I think the other thing about really the, the idea of weeding people out is not so much about can you put in the work anymore, but are you able to be open to new perspectives and new ideas and can you actually use your imagination and take input are you capable of that notion of synthesis like you talked about earlier about taking all these different parts and coming together with something that actually seems to make sense right and i think that's really more now like how the weed out part works i think it's really difficult to be an architecture student and everything is black and white that's a really hard situation to be in. You got to be able to have some ability to look at things from different viewpoints, different perspectives, and understand all these different sides to be able to, again, like you say, combine it all together into something that, that's new. And so to me, that's now more what that quote unquote weed out process is about. Yes. Okay. It's funny. So, you know, Andrew and I, we put together these run sheets and we're kind of like, here's our roadmap of things to discuss. We just finished. <laughs> yeah. Like, we're, we're like it was so much more. Yeah, we're barely into it. May have to make the do part two. We really ought to do part two. And it'll be interesting. Like there's things like we have a whole area like, well, how hard is it? How much time does it require? And like, what can you expect? What's the expectation about your graphic skills that you're needed? Like, do you need to come in being the rebirth of Michelangelo or will people teach you how to do all that stuff? I mean, like, yeah. So there's so much information again here. There's definitely going to be a part two. And chances are part two is going to be the very next episode because we want to talk about like how hard is it? What kind of graphic skills do you need? What kind of knowledge do you need to bring to the table? What are they going to teach you? Maybe what should you prepare to bring to the mix? There's so much more to get into. But we should also talk about the fact that every first year at almost every school is going to vary. They're all different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the difference is, this is what I believe. So you tell me if I'm off base on that. The first year for a five-year degree program is not much different than the first year of a four-year degree program. Am I wrong about that? Probably not. Yeah. I think it may be a little more architecture-centric in a five-year program. Yeah. Because it's a professional degree and it kind of has to be. Yeah. Nowadays to meet accreditation standards, but 
this might be a 20% difference at max. We're not talking about a giant difference between a four-year and a five-year first-year experience. I don't think that there's a huge difference, but there's small things, I think, that would be a little bit different. The bigger variable is from school to school. Okay, so let me ask you this. So, because I don't know this, and maybe you know it, or maybe it's just not known. Like, I, when the NAAB comes through, because I remember being in school and this process happened, and I remember some of the administration being a little like on pins and needles. Oh, man, they're coming in to check to make sure we're doing what we're supposed to do. Yeah, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. But the things that they look at, and this would be something that if you can find this out, just add it to the notes. The stuff they evaluate, because it's not just the classes, it's the teachers, it's the curriculum, it's what they're teaching, it's the order at which you offer the classes, it's the expectation of you, well, we're going to teach you this, this semester, and then we're going to teach you that, and like, how are we going to build upon this? What kind of professors do you have? What are their credentials that are teaching these students? There's a lot that goes into it. And I don't know that anybody who goes to architecture school or is thinking about going to architecture school doesn't show up on the radar. They don't know anything about it. No, not really. We just actually finished our NAB accreditation this spring for our program. Yeah. Was everybody like kind of freaking out about it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a big deal. And it's a lot of work and you have to put together a lot of stuff. Yeah. It evaluates everything. And they have criteria that you have to meet. And they recently changed that in 2020, adjusted the criteria. So it's a big deal to have that happen. And the difference is that ours is a master's program that's credit. So we have to meet these things for a professional degree the same that a five-year has to be. We have to do it in quote-unquote two years, and they have to do it in five. So it's a much more compact, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess. So that suggests that five years can get into the theory of stuff a little bit more than the four years can. For sure. Yeah. All right. Well, look, we're at a point now. Actually, we're at the most exciting point, (laughs) but we're going to stop because we're about to get into things like What kind of work will you be doing? What kind of projects might you be talking about? How much time do you need to spend to... There's so much more to get into, which is why this is a two-part episode. Sure. Or like those annoying people on TikTok that get right to the good part and they're like, like for part two. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Or this is the at the end of the television show. I mean, I don't know if they do that much anymore, right? Where it just says to be continued. There's a cliffhanger. It's the cliffhanger. "Ah." Yeah. 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 Well, luckily, we're not going to make wait till next season to get the this next part because... Honestly, I think all the people who are already architects or that are already in the business, even they'll like this next part in a lot of ways. Like Mm -hmm. what kind of classes are you taking? What kind of curriculum model making? What kind of technology is now making its way into the universities? Do you need to know how to use drafting software? Like that's a lot of stuff that I think people are going to want to know. So like for part two. (laughs) (laughs) Like and subscribe for part two. That's what it is. Yeah. Like and subscribe for part two. So we're going to save all that, what you could be doing, what's it going to cost. We're going to get in all that in part two. So what that means, we're up for this episode's, what's it going to be? Would you rather, hypothetical, this and that. Like, what's it going to be? It's the fun part. Yeah, the fun part. So I had this moment, full disclosure. I was like trying to think of all the different kind of ones we can come up with because these are hard. It's like getting hard to do these. Every one is harder and harder. And to build upon what happened before. I still got people going, you need to do more hot dog finger questions. (laughs) I'm like, that was like lightning in a bottle. That one was so, I don't know. Those are hypotheticals that aren't superpower ones. I don't know how that one just, that one just landed. Yeah. Again, it's hard to come up with those kinds of scenarios that I think that one hit a magic spot where it was goofy, but not too goofy. It wasn't too absurd somehow. 
It could have been, and it should have been, but it wasn't for some reason. Yes. And so, oh no, I heard it was goofy from a lot of people. When you start talking about the rest of them, though, then it's like, oh no, that's too much. We can't do that. It's too far. That's too far. Yeah. So it's hard. So I, I spent my lunch break today, literally. So in our office, you know, we moved into our new office, and they finally installed in the space behind my desk. I have ten feet of tack board and like another ten feet of marker board. So I'm like, I got to use my marker board. I got to use it. Prove it up. Yeah. So I'm writing down potential hypotheticals or would you rather because everyone in my office they all know they all know what it is so they walk by and they're like like one of the ones i put on there maybe we'll do it let me know if you think you want to do it it was would you rather have bad breath or greasy hair <laughs> like i mean we're just <laughs> and you'd be amazed nobody could agree that one there were so many of them and they're like okay uh i'm gonna go with this and then someone casually would be going oh that's a terrible answer and I was like, all right, this one might have some staying mm. power to it. But the one that I decided on, and I did shoot this over to you, so you had some time to think about it. A little bit. Yes. We're actually going to do a would you rather today. And the would you rather question for today is, would you rather be the smartest person living or you know all information? So that's it. Mm. And people are like, I don't know the difference. I was like, there's a huge difference. Yeah, there's a huge difference. Yeah. Huge difference. Yeah. And that difference is what makes the answer easier for me, I think. But yeah. Okay. Well, it's my question. So you got to answer first. Yeah. Okay. So my answer is the smartest person living. Yes. That's the obvious. That's the correct answer. Obvious. Because to me, being intelligent versus being a walking encyclopedia that doesn't mean I can synthesize, I can use that knowledge, I can't do anything with it, I just know it. Yes. It's like having an eidetic memory, but I can't put things together and use that information. I'm just... Yeah, you're Google. Yeah. Right? Like, I need to know what's the largest land mammal on the planet. Yeah. Well, I know the answer to that, but what am I going to do with that information? Yeah. How can I... How can that help me? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe this wasn't that great a question. <laughs> <laughs> or the first thing in my mind went to this notion of, well, if I'm the smartest living person, that actually allows me to make money and I can turn that into things and make things from that. The only way I'm doing that with having all living knowledge is I'm a Jeopardy champion. Yeah, you're a game show contestant. <laughs> that's it. That's all because that's all it's good for. So I'm a regurgitation of data. I'm not necessarily being able to use it. Okay, here's the thing you're still you, so you're not dumb. Yeah. It doesn't mean that you lose the ability to make connections, but you're not the world's smartest person. You're regular Andrew Hawkins smart, and you know all the information. Mm -hmm. And I kind of go, I feel like I could do a lot with that. I could, probably, but I could still probably do more if I was the smartest person living. Yes. Yes. But then it starts to go, if you're the smartest person, now all of a sudden you got to figure out like, well, which direction am I? You're harnessing your, it's almost a superpower, right? It is. But you know, the funny thing is now that we're talking about it, I think... It might be possible to do more good with all the knowledge and my current sort of level of intelligence because you could totally fly under the radar with that. Mm -hmm. You could do things, again, if I'm at my current level of intelligence, which I'm going to say is pretty high, <laughs> but and I have all the knowledge and I can do that, I could still be me but do a lot of stuff. Yeah. But if you're the smartest person in the world, that's all kinds of pressure. There's all kinds of... You can't hide that. You're nobody's going to, you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, that's the loophole. You're like famous at this point now. It's like, you can't hide that. No, no. All right. So let me, let me get this out there. So this was really where I thought the conversation would end up going. So if you're the smartest person, everybody knows it. 
whatever it is that you are, you're a chemist, you're a doctor, you're, that's getting out there. Everybody knows it. Mm -hmm. If you know all the information, all I can think about is how much would everybody talking drive you crazy? Somebody walks up and says, hey, you know, the Dallas Cowboys, they were great in 1987 when they did this. You're like, oh, it's 84. Yeah, that's true. Every mistake, which is probably we're bombarded with slightly wrong answers all the time, all the time, sure. like in every conversation and how much madness I'm kind of thinking if you knew everything and you had to exist with regular people, you'd go crazy because there's no chance. There's no chance. I bet like even in our conversation, like at the beginning of the show, you're like, oh, there's 121 master accredited programs. They're like, oh, there's actually 124. Yeah. How much data do you get put on every single day that has the opportunity to be close, but not right? And you know all sure. of it. Like, you know, every bit of it. And the restraint you would have to show to not correct everybody for everything mm -hmm. that they've done wrong. Yeah. They might kill yeah. you. You might get, they, everyone would hate you for that. Yeah. Although you, know? I was just saying, you could never scroll through Instagram again because the number of misappropriated quotes oh. to people about this and that would, it would be, I'd break my phone. Yes. Yeah. So I get that part. That could be crazily annoying, but it would be the same if you're the smartest person living because then everybody's dumb too, right? I mean, like, then you're like, oh my God. You know what the thing is, is like, let's say that I'm a Nobel Peace Prizing chemist or whatever. I mean, literally, I have the, I'm the Stephen Hawking of whatever. Mm -hmm. I know what I know. To the, yeah, whatever. To such a profound level. Somebody goes, blah, 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 Kardashian. Well, what do I know? I don't know that. Yeah, like, I true. don't care. Like, there's so much they don't know. Could be. But although I'm assuming if you're the smartest person in the world, you're going to still know quite a bit. But yes, in that regard, I wouldn't know things like that where if I had all the information in my head as like Google and they start talking about the Kardashians and it's wrong, I'm going to know it and be annoyed. But that's what it is. Yeah. So I was like, I have to be the smartest person living because I would either kill somebody or be killed yeah. if I knew all the, because at some point, I don't think you could, you couldn't restrain yourself. You would crack. It'd be hard to function, right? Yeah. Yes. And I don't think that would be true because if you're the smartest person alive, you know what's going to happen? You're going to start hanging out with other like really, smart really people. smart people. Yeah. Like that's just, that's just going to happen. You knowing all the information, you're just a regular dude. You're just not a dude in the next cubicle over. Yeah. So you're still going to be hanging out with regular folks mm -hmm. doing your regular job because you're still you. This is true. But you just know like the fastest flying bird in the African continent yeah. is. Like you know that answer. You know the population of whatever this city is and wherever. All yes. that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yes. But we're not saying you can connect any information together any more than you can now. Now. But you just know that when everybody says something wrong, you know it's wrong. Yeah, that would actually be the worst part. Yeah. So pass. Because essentially what that does, now that we're talking about it, I mean, it just means you don't have to use Google. That's really all it eliminates from your life, because I know this information. And so even though I can use that stuff, I'm going to be completely annoyed, like you say, with everybody else. I mean, I already get annoyed at that stuff right now. Yeah, and you're probably right like 20% of the time yourself. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that, yeah, but... I couldn't handle it. There's that. that might be rough. There's no chance. I will concede that... As much as I am a know-it-all, I can acknowledge that I don't know it all. Mm -hmm. And it would literally drive me crazy to be around people. If you actually knew it all. <laughs> if I actually did know it all. Yeah. That would be <laughs> I rough. couldn't do it. That would be really hard. I don't think I'd make it. I don't think that I'd make really it. That would be really hard. Really difficult. But still, it doesn't change the answer. I still choose to be the smartest person living, but 
but for maybe for a different reason than you initially thought. Yes. 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 Because then can you imagine you'd kill somebody because they drove you crazy and then you're in prison where like there's probably even more incorrect information. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. We made our point. I think we've reached a point where I'm going to call today's show a wrap. Thank you for being with us today for episode 31, Starting Architecture School, Part 1. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Construction Specialties, for their support of today's episode. We would also like to thank our media sponsors, Building Design and Construction, for their ongoing support of the Life of an Architect podcast. Want to get every new episode automatically downloaded? We're available on all major podcast platforms, so hit that subscribe button so you can get notified every two weeks when we publish an exhilarating new episode. And while you're there, please take a few more seconds and leave us a five-star, this-isn't-scary-at-all rating. To get even more content, head over to lifeofanarchitect.com for blog posts, links, and info about this conceptually solid episode and all the website has to offer. You can even add your voice and join the conversation. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take it easy, everybody. Cheers.